from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am guest hosting, filling in for Tony Perkins today as he begins to enjoy his Thanksgiving break, as we all begin to enjoy our week of Thanksgiving, which seems more important this year than perhaps in other years. Because in 2020, don't we all need to remember all the things we have to be thankful for? And so we are going to try to do that uh, today on the show. And in fact, stay tuned to the end of the program. Our last guest, Franklin Graham, is going to join us not only to talk about Operation Christmas Child, but also to tell us some Graham family Thanksgiving Christmas stories. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. But until then, we have several other great guests and a lot of great information uh, for you today. We are going to talk with Chris Mitchell, who's the Middle East Bureau Chief uh, from CBN News, about developments in the Middle East, uh, about a summit that just happened in the last few days and that you will want to know about and, and also just what's going on in the Middle East and, and what does the uh, what what does the potential change in administrations mean. Also, we're going to talk to a USAID Chief Advisor Sam Norquest about religious freedom efforts, international religious freedom. What has the Trump administration been doing on uh, religious freedom issues around the globe? And finally, Rebecca Mansour who's a senior editor-at-large for Breitbart, is going to join us to talk about COVID mandates from governors around the country. What are they doing now, and how are people responding to it? And again, we will uh, wrap up the program today with Franklin Graham and be happy to do so. That is the program. So glad that you are with us. So glad that you are uh, spending some time with us on this Monday evening. But first, before we get into this, I'm going to welcome in, because it is late where Chris Mitchell is. He is the Middle East Bureau Chief of for CBN News. Chris, thanks for staying up late. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, great to be with you, Joseph, even at uh, this late hour in Jerusalem, but it's great to be with you. Well, we are glad to have you, and we hope that you will uh, you will enjoy Thanksgiving as we all will uh, this week from Jerusalem. But I do want you to fill us in. Some of us who, and I would consider myself one that uh, is not a foreign policy expert. There's a lot of things that happen around the world that that I have a difficult time keeping up with. And I'm hoping that you can help me and us, mm-hmm. uh, my audience today with this, because I have a feeling I'm not the only one. Because uh, there's a new developments, a, a meeting, which was dubbed a secret meeting mm-hmm. by uh, with Netanyahu and the Saudi crown prince. Tell us a little bit about why this meeting matters and maybe what, what has led up to that. Well, uh, first of all, Joseph, it matters because it looks like this could be the first step of many steps towards normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia, the largest Sunni Arab nation in the Middle East, and Israel. Uh, it would be historic if that, uh, if that happens. Uh, what's gone on before this is the Abraham Accords, this uh, historic relationship between the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Sudan uh, with, uh, with Jewish state, which is really, uh, if you could imagine uh, even saying this would happen five or ten years ago, uh, I don't think many people would believe it. But it is, uh, it, it's a powerful, uh, powerful signal to what's happened. This secret meeting, which obviously was leaked to the press, uh, was presumably between Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Mossad chief, Yossi Cohen, uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo and the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, it, it, like I said, this could represent Saudi Arabia perhaps being the next Sunni Arab nation to, to normalize re- relations with Israel. Now, why this is so important in the general geopolitics of the Middle East? Uh, it appears that a lot of the uh, motivation behind these relationships is a common. Uh, fear of the danger of a nuclear Iran. Uh, Just recently, it was revealed by the International Atomic Energy Agency that that Iran has about 12 times the amount of enriched uranium uh, that it's allowed under the uh, Iranian nuclear deal. So that is uh, one thing that's uh, motivating a lot of this uh, relationship between potentially Saudi Arabia and these other uh, Sunni Arab nations. 
So what we have here is, is this just general uh, fear or concern about what's going in Iran that's bringing people together in a kind of the, uh, en- the enemy of your enemy is your friend kind of a sense? Is that what we're seeing? Yeah, that's part of it. I would say it's a major factor, but I, I would say also that uh, there are benefits, mutual benefits uh, to both Israel and many of these nations. Uh, for example, with the UAE and Bahrain, uh, there's uh, a talks of a lot of trade, uh, mutual trade. They see Israel as the uh, startup nation, one of the uh, technological leaders in the Middle East, if not the world. Uh, so they see trade, they see tourism, uh, they see that, and we can get into this as well, but the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has really had a veto power over much of the possibility of normalization uh, relations uh, with these Sunni Arab nations. And so I would say fear of Iran is one major factor, but also trade, tourism, and the technology that they can share one with another, I think, is something that is, uh, again, a motivation. Uh, I, I may be heading to, uh, to the Middle East, uh, you know, maybe sometime in February. There's a large group of entrepreneurs leaving uh, from here to, uh, to uh, UAE and probably Bahrain. And so that is, uh, that is a major motiva- motivating factor as well. Now, you we mentioned that this it was being dubbed a secret meeting that was leaked, which suggests to me at least that uh, there was some reason for these leaders to want to keep this conversation quiet. Is there a potential political backlash for the leaders of these countries for even having these conversations and continuing uh, down the path potentially toward normalizing relationships? Well, I think for one, for, for Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think he sees it as a benefit. And I think uh, overall Israelis see the uh, Abraham Accords as, a, as a, not only a benefit but a blessing to, uh, uh, to many Israelis. There are some that disagree with that, and they would prefer that uh, Israel would have gone to the uh, idea of declaring sovereignty over parts of Judea and Samaria. Uh, for U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, I think it's a benefit to him. And the Crown Prince uh, of uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, he doesn't have to deal as much with the political backlash uh, as maybe some uh, some leaders in the United States or Israel do. But I think it was a benefit for almost everyone. Uh, people could actually track the uh, the plane flight by Benjamin Netanyahu and the Mossad uh, director from Tel Aviv all the way to Neum, uh, which is uh, in northwestern Saudi Arabia. And just let me add, Joseph, that Neum is, uh, is significant because uh, Saudi Arabia sees that as the city of the future, and they have something called 2030 vision. They want to transform their economy from an oil-based economy to one based on technology, tourism, and trade. Uh, we were there last September in, in Neum, and uh, it's, it's much uh, desert right now, but they have they plan to spend maybe $500 billion developing that site. Uh, so that's kind of significant that that's where they met. Why, why is it that Naum is the place that they see as central for this 2030 vision? Well, they see it as a sort of a city of the future. They want to bring uh, people from all over the world there to, uh, to uh, develop it. It's right there on the Red Sea. Uh, why they chose that particular place, I'm not sure. Uh, but they want to use that area and develop it. Uh, we have, we were there in Neum. We're also in a place called El Ula, which is uh, the southern capital of the Nabataeans. If people may know the idea about Petra, Petra is was the northern capital, uh, and this is a place in the desert they want to develop for tourism. And the whole idea behind Neum, El Ula, and, uh, and this whole 2030 vision is to open Saudi Arabia up to the world, and uh, we, when we were there, we spoke with a number of Saudis, including some uh, younger Saudis in their late 20s and 30s, and they are willing, they want the world to come to Saudi Arabia. So it's really historic development for, uh, for the epicenter of Islam. Well, that is encouraging that, the, that, that a part of the world that has been a source of a lot of conflict wants to see. Mm-hmm. And is this, is this a, as much about money as it is anything else? They just realize there's a lot to gain by getting along with people, and we want their tourism dollars. We want you to come here because we, we think we can benefit from this? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. I think it's first a recognition that oil is, uh, is 
a commodity that won't last forever, so they want to transform their economy uh, into something that will last uh, much longer. But I think also in the uh, in the younger generation in Saudi Arabia, there's a pressure upon the older generation uh, to open up to the world. And, and uh, I, I had this delightful conversation with a young lawyer, a young school teacher, a, a college professor, and an entrepreneur, that, uh, and that's what they were telling me, that they really want uh, Saudi Arabia to open up to the world. That was really happening at the end of 2019, but obviously COVID-19 really had a, uh, a put a break on that like it has in so many places in the world. But I think when this pandemic uh, passes, I think we're going to see this acceleration of Saudi Arabia opening to the world. And I think this idea, this meeting, uh, quote-unquote secret meeting in Naum, is just one uh, step in that road. We're speaking with Chris Mitchell, who's the Middle East Bureau Chief for CBN News, about a meeting that happened in the last few days with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Saudi Crown Prince as well. Now, Chris... We've heard over the last several months, there's these headlines that come up with with Sudan, you mentioned, and Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. Why is it that it seems the Trump administration has been able to do things diplomatically in this region that previous administrations didn't seem to be able to do? I think one of the main things is that they looked at the Middle East from a whole different paradigm or perspective. Uh, For example, uh, there is a you can Google that. a video of former Secretary of State John Kerry saying uh, emphatically that there will be no relations of any of these Sunni Arab nations with Israel unless there's a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, He said it over and over, and yet, uh, but if you look at the interest of many of these Sunni Arab nations, and as we discussed, the mutual danger they see from the Islamic Republic of Iran, and especially a new, potentially nuclear uh, Iran, uh, they they see this in their own self-interest that they uh, they will go ahead and, and uh, normalize these relations uh, with the Jewish state. And so I think that's part of the difference. Uh, the Trump administration uh, looked at the problem from a whole different perspective, and I think you see that in, in other examples. Uh, for example. Uh, Moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, uh, you know, the Republican and Democratic presidents uh, failed to do that or didn't want to do that. Uh, I'm sitting across the street from it. That's where I live here in Jerusalem. Uh, President Trump did it in 2018. Uh, many people thought the World War III would happen, but it didn't. So I think they took a whole different perspective of a uh, uh, Middle East peace. Chris, that leads me to one final question. Just a few seconds on this, if you could. What then could we expect to change in a potential Biden administration? I think the main thing, Joseph, is that they would probably go back to the Iranian nuclear deal, something that people here in Israel and the wider Middle East, I think, would feel would be very dangerous. Chris Mitchell, Middle East Bureau Chief, CBN News. Thank you so much for staying up late. Thank you for being with us today, for updating us on this really critical, important story that we do need to keep in prayer. It's just a good thing for, as we head into the holiday season, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's really good for everybody if people are getting along in the Middle East, and we hope and pray that that will continue. On the other side of the break, we are going to talk more about international religious freedom with USAID Chief Simon Norquist. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I-, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in anytime. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, 
it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. To Washington Watch, Joseph Backlund sitting in for Tony Perkins. Hope you enjoyed that conversation about what's going on in the Middle East. Good news. But in addition, we are going to bring in Salmon Norquist, who is the chief advisor for the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, to enlighten you about other developments internationally the effect religious freedom we know that we have we've talked about this a lot in the in the united states especially in 2020 church shutdowns all those things uh, covid restrictions we talk about religious freedom uh domestically but the united states government has a lot to do with what happens around the world is setting the tone what's allowed what's not allowed uh with respect to religious freedom around the country and salmon orquist is here to uh, enlighten us about what has happened over the last four years on some issues that you may not be aware about but need to know about so Ms. norquist welcome to washington watch delighted to be with you thanks for having me today well, we are thrilled to have you. You, race, you recently gave a speech uh, at the International Christian Concern event, and you highlighted some of the things that have been happening over the last four years. Would you uh, en- enlighten us a little bit, tell the audience, what is it that is happening a little bit under the surface that the United States government is doing to impact you know, religious freedom around the world? Sure. Um, so uh, when the Trump administration uh, came into um, – started in 2016, uh, religious freedom, uh, international religious freedom in particular, uh, was elevated as one of the priorities of, of the Trump administration on foreign policy. Uh, and it was it, it just kept going on and on and on. It was the president, it was the vice president, uh, and, and, and then um, the, the, you recall that President Trump gave a major speech at the U.N. a couple of uh, – last year, actually, uh, in 2019, about the importance of uh, advancing international religious freedom and its priority. Uh, and that that priority also was highlighted in the national security strategy that the United States um, had in 2017. So we went from just talking about the importance of religious freedom and liberty around the world to actually doing action within uh, our um, our diplomatic efforts. 
So in June 2020, President Trump uh, signed uh, an executive order, and that executive order mandates State Department and the USAID to use diplomatic engagements uh, and programmatic funds, uh, public diplomacy, as well as development and humanitarian assistance that will collectively advance and strengthen the political and economical rights of religious communities and their participation in their society. Now, religious freedom takes uh, and, and, and threats to religious freedoms of people around the world uh, take different shapes and forms. Uh, some are persecuted, some uh, go under discrimination or repression. But really, it's, it's this executive order from the beginning of this administration has provided us as, a, um, as the, the diplomatic face of the United States and its leadership around the world with a very powerful tool to advance it and uh, in, in, integrate it into our diplomacy and foreign assistance. Well, that's really encouraging to hear. What are the regions, what are the places where this has been a priority issue since the administration made it a priority? Uh, sure. So we started uh, in 2017. Uh, actually, Vice President uh, Pence uh, directed uh, USAID and the State Department to work directly with uh, persecuted communities in Iraq um, that were victims of, of ISIS genocide. Uh, from that point, uh, we started um, – the biggest thing was to respond to the needs of those communities and not just respond by through the United Nations, but also to work directly uh, and fund directly some of those local, local groups in Iraq, in northern Iraq, uh, whether they're Christians or Yazidis, that were really the real victims of the atrocities uh, that committed by ISIS. Uh, so uh, we, up, to, up to now, uh, the United States government has uh, provided $400 million in assistance to Iraq, uh, that uh, built homes, rehabilitated uh, schools and hospitals, and a number of things that, uh, that we've done in Iraq to respond to these needs. Uh, from Iraq, uh, we have a number of, of uh, areas in the world. Uh, we have uh, worked in the Rohingya, uh, in Burma, where um, the Muslim um, populations there have been targeted by violence and, and atrocities by, in Burma. Uh, other areas that we're addressing now is the atrocities that uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party commits against its, its own uh, populations. Uh, the Chinese Communist Part, uh, Party is openly at war with faith. Uh, Beijing bans the sales of Bibles, demolishes churches, and persecutes believers of all faiths who do not uh, ascribe to the party line. Uh, they they imprisoned over one million Muslims uh, uh, in a brutal systematic campaign to erase their religion and culture uh, in Xinjiang. So uh, we're also uh, looking at uh, the atrocity against uh, uh, communities of faith in Nigeria by Boko Haram and ISIS West Africa. So the world is, is full of, uh, unfortunately, uh, challenges and threats to communities of faith. Too many people live in countries where religious freedom is threatened, restricted, or even banned. So from a USAID perspective, uh, we're working uh, along with the State Department in order to ensure that USAID's programs respond to the needs uh, of those communities uh, and empower them and make sure that uh, we reaffirm our commitment and leadership uh, around the world. And very quickly, in a, in, in, a couple of, in a few seconds we have left, tell us, mm -hmm. what's the trend globally? Is it stable? Is it just as bad as it's always been? Is it getting better, getting worse? It's actually getting worse. Um, the data from Pew Research shows that 56 governments across the globe impose high or very high levels of restrictions on religion. This is up from 40 in 2007. So we see trends that is going up, and uh, we're hoping that the United States leadership continues to focus on this issue and responds to the needs uh, of the of communities around the uh, around the world. Thank you, Sam Norquist, USAID. Thank you for joining us. Come back. We'll talk with Rebecca Mansour from Breitbart on the other side of the break.
Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The Federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. My pleasure to be with you. Thanksgiving is coming up on Thursday, and with it, a lot of lockdown updates from governors around the country telling people who they can have dinner with, uh, whether they have to eat inside or outside, and how many people are allowed to come over. This and more for this conversation, we're going to bring in Rebecca Mansour, who is the senior editor-at-large at Breitbart. Ms. Mansour, thank you so much for taking some time. Oh, happy to join you, Joseph, and uh, happy early Thanksgiving for all of your listeners. Well, thank you, and, and happy Thanksgiving to you, and I do hope you're going to enjoy it, and I hope you're going to help us understand how we're going to enjoy it. Tell us a little bit about what what's going on. We know we had in the spring a round of lockdowns. They seem to be renewing uh, right now. What's, what's going on around the country with respect to uh, these COVID lockdowns? Yeah, you're right that the lockdowns are continuing, and, and many of them are ramping up because of the increase in cases of uh, COVID and the increase in deaths. So a lot of the governors are, you know, either instituting lockdown rules for the first time or, you know, putting them back on. So, you know, you have states like New Mexico now. Um, they have just issued a stay-at-home order that just went into effect. Uh, and basically only essential businesses, which they define as grocery stores and pharmacies, things like that, are, are allowed to be open. Um, you have other states like Michigan reinforcing the lockdowns that they had earlier now saying basically they're closing down, you know, uh, in-person classes for colleges and high schools, restaurants have to stop indoor dining, things like that. Entertainment venues are, are you know, probably going to be closed. So, I mean, these are the sorts of things that are going into, into effect. But I think even more so, Joseph, what's really interesting right now is all of the travel restrictions or the new travel rules that are going into effect. We see like about 2 million Americans, we've, uh, you know, the latest reporting is are planning on traveling um, this uh, holiday weekend, which is interesting because they have really tried to stop people from traveling or deter them or, or you know, dissuade them from even trying to travel. And at the various locations, various states have imposed all sorts of really interesting, sometimes Byzantine rules for people when they arrive. Like, for example, a number of states say that you have to quarantine for 14 days on arrival into their states. 
unless you actually are able to show that you have tested negative within the 72 hours before traveling. And they're really, some of them are really very serious on monitoring this. Yeah. So it, it almost kind of negates the reason to go if you're trying, hoping to just go for a couple of days. No, they're saying you have to quarantine for 14 days upon arrival in many of these states. Well, that, that begs a question for me. And I, I've always you know, said that a rule is as, is as strong as its enforcement mechanism. And if nobody's actually going to enforce the rule, the rule doesn't really exist. What are the threats? What, what are people at risk of if they violate, for example, a 14-day quarantine requirement if you go into a state or any of these other rules? That's a great question, Joseph. I mean, because some of the states... It's kind of the honor system. <laughs> they tell you you're required to 14-day quarantine yourself, but they don't really have a way to monitor that you're doing that. They're just sort of hoping that you do it. Other states, however, are much more um, – they're much bigger on the enforcement. Some of them are saying basically upon arrival you are required to sign a form – um, or, or provide your test results, things like that. Some states, like Connecticut, actually do state that they will um, there will be a, a civil pen- penalty of up to $500 for each violation of the quarantine if they catch you. Um, but as I mentioned, states like, for example, Massachusetts, they state that all travelers arriving in Massachusetts are required to complete the Massachusetts travel form before arrival. You know, and then the, you're also required to quarantine for 14 days or produce a negative COVID test result um, that was done 72 days before arrival. So you got to actually show that. And then there's other states like, um, I mean, uh, Hawaii is very strict. Um, they're saying, you know, the states, uh, you have to take uh, the pre-travel testing program, um, you know, before you're even allowed to proceed in. And they make you show your test results, and it has to be a specific test. Um, that they have approved. So, I mean, they're very strict. Some In other states are are less strict, um, but are just hoping that there's like a kind of an honor system in place, you know. Mm -hmm. And then some of the rules that they have are very specific. Like they have different, depending on where you're traveling from, like Chicago has like different color coding for which state you have to quarantine if you come in from. So, I mean, I hope everyone's checking this before they arrive because I don't want anyone to be confused or surprised if they – arrive in a state and they're like forced to quarantine or not even allowed in or something who knows this is gonna there's all sorts of uncertainty injected into this now i do think it's going to be interesting to to see how people whether plans actually change because of course thanksgiving is notoriously one of the busiest travel times of the year tell me this um are the governors, and we have one minute left, are people learning based on the, er, the over the over the course of this year? Are these just like the previous lockdowns, or are they different in some way? They seem to be pretty much the same. I mean, I think that now, like I said, they're probably going to start hammering up the penalties for people. That's what I'm interested to see, is if they trust us in this honor system or if they don't. Well, I guess we'll see. We'll find out, Joseph. Well, Rebecca Munsour, thank you so much for taking a moment to update us on this. And all of you out there, be safe and be careful. On the other side of the break, we're going to wrap up this Thanksgiving conversation for today with Reverend Franklin Graham, who's going to talk to us about Operation Christmas Child, share some Thanksgiving stories, leave you with some encouragement and some things to be really thankful for as we head into Thanksgiving. Stay with us on the other side of the break. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. 
When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. Senators, particularly Democrats, have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology, congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit frc.org slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash human sexuality. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins. If you want to catch today's show later, you can do so at TonyPerkins.com, where this and every show is archived for your listening pleasure. Thanksgiving in four days. It's four days. It is Monday today. Yes. And and we are going to uh, be giving thanks in addition as we enter. And Thanksgiving for me is really just kind of the beginning of the holiday season in general, as we not only think about what to get for our children and others, but what to give. And one of the best illustrations of how to give and how to bless other people and how to be mindful of how much we have and how much we have to give to others is Operation Christmas Child. And this, when, when I was growing up, and I won't betray my age right now, but I used to stuff these boxes for kids and, and hear about how they were going to bless people all over, the, all over the world. I now have four children, and we stuff these boxes together and talk about uh, the needs around the world and how fortunate we are not only to have what we have, to be, but to be able to give what we uh, can give. And the, the, the founder, the reason that we have Operation Christmas Child is here with us today, Dr. Franklin Graham. Dr. Graham, Thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Watch. Well, thank you for having me today, Joseph. Well, we it is our pleasure, and it is my pleasure. And Operation Christmas Child, started in 1993, has now distributed 178 million shoebox gifts to children in more than 160 countries. Can you tell us how this got started and how it became what it is today? Well, first of all, it's just something God has done, Joseph. Uh, uh, you know, people have asked, you know, how we came up with this plan. I'm, I'm, you know, we're just not that smart. Uh, it's something, again, God. So we give him the credit. Uh, but it was I was asked back during the war in Bosnia uh, in the early 90s if we would be willing to uh, participate in a program to send shoebox gifts to children in refugee camps. And, um, I mean, that's a, that's a no-brainer. And we said, yeah, we'd be glad to do it. And the first couple of years we did this, it was very expensive. We didn't have the volunteer base. We didn't have, and it was just killing us financially. And we just weren't sure we could continue doing it. And there was really nothing Christian about the program other than we were Christians giving the boxes out, but there was no attempt to to share with the child the true meaning of, of Christmas, and that's Jesus Christ. So we finally got together as a team and just said, listen, we're not going to do this anymore unless we can really make this an effort uh, to tell children 
about God's Son, Jesus Christ, who came. And Christmas is about God giving. Jesus Christ came uh, so that he could take our sins. God gave his Son. And uh, we thought, we, we want the children to know that God gave his Son to the world to take the sins of the world. And we put our faith and trust in him and ask for his forgiveness. He'll forgive us and cleanse us, and he'll invite us to be with him in heaven. So when we made that decision, it's just when the, the, the program took off. And it's just it's just something again God has done, and we we look at the numbers, and these are huge numbers, but every box is important. Uh, every child that gets a box is special to God, and uh, so I just cannot you know emphasize enough the importance of just the box, what God can do with a simple box. And I always ask people to pray as you pack the box. Pray for the child who's going to get the box. Well, I have no clue where that box will go. Uh, we go to 100-plus countries, but God does. And I think, you know, we, we know God will hear the prayer of one righteous person. Can you imagine? This year we'll collect about 11 million boxes, 11 million prayers for children. Just think what God might do, Joseph. Amen. You know, that's, and it's a great point, this idea that what can God do with just a simple box? And in so many ways, that just that'll preach all day because we are really just empty vessels that He uses. And and what can God do with us? What can He do with a box? Because He's ultimately the one that fills it and, and does the work. And I know that the the purpose of this is not just simply to give something tangible, but to have it be an entree to the gospel. How has this enabled people on the ground in these countries to have open doors, to share the gospel, to lead people to Jesus? Well, uh, first of all, we, you know, how do you give away this year, this year 11 million shoeboxes? How do you give away 11 million anything? You've got to have partners uh, who can help you. And, of course, our partners are the evangelical churches around the world. And so in every country we have a, 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 a consortium of churches that come together that divide up their country into sections, and uh, they, they agree to give so many boxes to each group of churches. And then it's the pastor in those churches that's responsible for distributing uh, those, those boxes to the children in their community. And so um, the gospel is presented by the churches, and then uh, we have a discipleship program, and it's called The Greatest Journey. And uh, this started in 2009 for children that have received Christ. We offer through the churches where they can come back for a 12-lesson discipleship course. And this 12 lessons gives a kind of a bird's-eye view of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. And, and we go into more depth into Jesus Christ and, and, and what he did and uh the, the miracles that he performed and so forth. So we just give the children more information, and uh, then they have to memorize Scripture, and then they have a test, and uh, the, they have to repeat these Scriptures uh, to their pastor, and then uh, they ask questions about what they've learned, and they get a certificate that they've graduated. And this, this year, uh, we started this in 2009, we've already had 23 million children that have enrolled and have taken the course and have graduated. And and what we want to do is to raise up an army of children who know how to share their faith with other children. And, you know, I, I remember years ago my father was asked, you know, who's the next Billy Graham? Well, of course, he said, I don't know. Uh, and, uh, and he was talking to a group of uh, evangelists, uh, and he said, oh, you, all of you are. And I'm just thinking about these children of the world, you know, 23 million who have graduated. And, and out of that, maybe God will raise up an army of children who will go not only to their country, but to their, the region of the world where they live and share Christ uh, to another generation. And that's our hope and our prayer. And uh, so it's not just the shoebox, but it's the discipleship and everything else that goes with it. Well, that is our hope and our prayer as well, because it's it's... You know, as each person within the church just takes advantages of the opportunities that God gives us, the cumulative effect of that is is so significant when we're all obedient in, in different ways. And, and tell us, how can we partner with you in this, in, in this Christmas season that is coming up? What can we do to, to, to join with you? Oh, well, 
we'd love to have everybody just pack a shoebox. And um, and uh, we have over 4,000 curbside drop-offs. Then go to our our, our uh, website and uh, SamaritansFirst.org, and you can get information on uh, where these drop-offs are. And then also, uh, if there's something not near you, you can absolutely just you know, mail it to us or uh, send it to us at, uh, in, here in North Carolina. And we'll take the box and we'll process it, and we'll get it to, to a child this year. So, but the most important thing, the, the website tells you what to put in the box and things not to put in a box, like don't put a Snicker bar in there or don't put an orange or an apple because they won't make it. But uh, the things that you can put and that we encourage people to put and we always ask people, put your picture in there, because we want the child who gave, who gets the box to see the people who gave the box to them. And uh, put your address on in there, because maybe the child will have an opportunity to write you back. And every year there are tens of thousands of kids who do write back and say thank you. So we want to put little, you know, little bridges of contact uh, with families here in this country, with uh, children around the world. Yes, this is just a great reminder to everyone listening. Go to SamaritansPurse.org right now. Get everything that you need to know how to to put a box together and how to send it in a way. Pray over it. Put the contents that are necessary to not only bless a child somewhere in the globe that is that is in need, but bless your family as well. And these kind of these real relationships. And, and my family actually has sponsored children through uh, another great organization called Gospel for Asia with kids for 18 years, sending you know resources and money to that child and developing a relationship. And, and it's a great opportunity for kids to just see not only how other people are living but build those relationships across the globe and just see how the church needs to prioritize just the service of other people so again go to samaritanspurse.org and find out everything that you need to do one of these together as a family this christmas season now dr graham this is a an unusual thanksgiving uh, year because 2020 uh whatever whatever terms we want to use to refer to it has been a challenging year for people. I know a lot of people are, are entering a Thanksgiving week that is different where circumstances are not maybe what they would have hoped they were. They would be uh, when they thought about 2020 in January, how should we be thinking about Thanksgiving? What are the reasons to be thankful? Well, first of all, there's so much to be thankful for to thank God for the country that we live in. Uh, thank God for the freedom that we have. And, of course, uh, with the pandemic, uh, people will celebrate this Thanksgiving a little differently. There won't be as many maybe family members gathered together. But uh, that doesn't mean we can't be thankful and celebrate Thanksgiving by helping someone else. And I think that's the greatest way to help or to, to celebrate Thanksgiving is thinking of other people. And so, you know, this Thanksgiving, there may be a neighbor that you can uh, take a meal to, or there may be a person who's shut in that uh, you can uh, reach out and help in some way. So I would encourage people this Thanksgiving as we thank God, uh, let's look around and find people that maybe we can reach out and touch and do it in Jesus' name and and how important that is. And I I remember, you know, as a family, my parents, uh, when we were young, always were looking for people in the community that they could reach out and share with and help. And they did it very quietly. They didn't let people know who, who was doing it. But it's just uh, they were always thinking about other people, and I think we can certainly do the same thing this, this Thanksgiving and remember that God made us and created us, and he gave us this life that we're living, and uh, he wants us to enjoy this life, and we've got challenges in this life, and... Um, so be it. Uh, the Lord Jesus had great challenges, didn't he? And uh, he went to the cross and he took took our sins to the cross so that we might live. And I just look around and see this Thanksgiving as we thank God for our family and our friends and our loved ones. Uh, let's see if there's other people that we can help along the way. 
I think that's an, an excellent reflection. The, the fact is that when, when things get hard, sometimes we are tempted to forget that God is still at work. And not only is God still at work when things are hard, sometimes that's the primary vehicle God uses to be at work. It is the greatest indicator that God is at work because that's how he wakes us from our slumber so often is through making us uncomfortable. And, and we scripture is, is filled with that story. Once we get comfortable is when we forget that God is the source of all the good things that we had. And when we are most tempted to take credit for that, that's when he disrupts our comfort and gets our attention. And when we know this, this is, these are also our opportunities for us to join God in what he's doing in the world, because he is very much at work in 2020, maybe more than he was in 2019, as painful as that might be. And as we open our eyes and look around, we are going to find opportunities to serve uh, in, in partner with God in what he's doing. Dr. Graham, do you have a uh, a favorite Thanksgiving story that you might be able to share with us, a, a memory from your childhood or something that, that stands out to you that, that makes you smile when you start thinking about Thanksgiving? Uh, I've got a few of them. Um, We'd love to hear them. Uh, I think the, when I look back at um, the, 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 really the last uh, 10 or 15 years, um, as my parents got older, um, how much it meant to all of us children and grandchildren uh, for us to just have them with us. And uh, my father would um, would uh, start after after we had our meal. We'd all gather around the fireplace, and he would just ask all of us what we were thankful for that year. And um, my sister Ann has a, has a daughter, and she always would start crying and. You know, it was uh, very emotional, and uh, that was, after a while, that became kind of a, uh, something that uh, we, we anticipated as a family. But to go around the room and uh, see our children and grandchildren uh, say what was important to them and what they were thankful for, it was very touching. And we, we for my mother and father, especially as they got older and um it was, you know, it was difficult for them to even to be in the room with all of us um, just because of their age. But they, they did it, and uh, it was very special as we look back and just remember the times that we had with uh, our, our, our my mother and father. And I, I just, and I'm thankful as, as we come to things. I'm just thankful for the for the witness of my parents and for their faithfulness and uh, not wavering on the gospel. And uh, we live in a day and time where people are compromising on the Word of God, uh, compromising on the things of the faith, and uh, we, because we're wanting people to like us and pat us on the back. Uh, and I'm just thankful that I had parents that uh, didn't worry about um, being patted on the back, but they stood for the Word of God, and what, if God said it, that, that was into the discussion. And uh, so they were true to the Word of God, and for me as a son, I'm very grateful uh, to have parents like that. Well, Franklin, Franklin Graham, we are thankful for your parents, and we are thankful for you. And we do hope that you and your family are going to have a blessed Thanksgiving, and we are going to help you do that by all going to SamaritansPurse.org and finding out how we can be part of Operation Christmas Child. Thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.